How are you? Hey. Hey, nice to see you. We are fine. Yeah, we're doing good. Great to hear. Where are you right now? Where are you based, actually? We're in New York City right now. New York City. It's nice. So yeah, so happy to have you. I mean, we have so much to talk about. I'm very curious about your journey. You have been creating art for three decades. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And you have been breaking boundaries. You're also both our professors. You are a duo. You collaborate together and you explore different mediums, installations, video, software, and are also very present in the digital art space. And in 2014, you created Quantum. That's a very interesting topic. The first NFT, I'm, I'm very curious about that and how it all went down. But let's maybe start from the beginning. How did you start in the art world? You start creating art. Yeah, I think we were both interested in the culture and ideas and found our way from different paths into visual art, media art. I was more of a theater film student and was thinking I might do a PhD in film studies. And Kevin was doing philosophy and thinking about that. And then when we met in France and it was a really excellent year of seeing a lot of art and seeing a lot of moving image work. And we sort of slowly developed a practice that was at first kind of collaborative in terms of working on each other's projects. And then we started to co-author work kind of after graduate school. Yeah, we were at first really interested in filmmaking, especially experimental filmmaking, artists film and things like that. That was really a revelation when I first you know saw it that these ideas, these really incredible visual ideas that artists had been doing for many decades in film. And so that seemed pretty interesting to us. And then we uh, returned to the States, returned to the U.S. and thought about going to art school more more directly, and then happened upon a a really early and interesting program called Integrated Electronic Arts, which at, at the time before digital art, before new media, before all those terms mm-hmm. were, were in, invented, there was not really a very precise name to describe these things. And so the idea of combining music and animation and video all together with these new tools that were happening was a pretty radical idea and pretty interesting to us. And so we ended up going to study at an engineering school in upstate New York called Rensselaer and had a really great time working with musicians as well as with video makers and, and artists using very early computer tools. And it was really, it was really fun. And so that got us going in a kind of hybrid media way. Yeah. Right. And we've been interested in artist groups like Art and Language and Fluxus and we're interested in this idea of both conceptual art and also live processes. And so the way that instruction-based art and chance operations kind of flows into generative work or algorithmically based work seemed appropriate to both of those kinds of interests. And also just working collectively and collaboratively just felt like a really interesting way to make work that was I don't know, if you make work in conversation with another person, it's very easy to imagine then the conversation being, you know, extended to potential viewers and audience members. So Mm -hmm. that kind of thing made sense. And when we came to New York in the kind of mid to late 90s, and there was a lot, it was a very small community 
of art and tech people at the time. Uh, and there was a lot of people working in groups and, and collaboratively in pairs or, or three, three, um, you know, three people or something like that. Um, and so there were, you know, some that aren't really active anymore, but were doing amazing work. Uh, a group called Fake Shop uh, was doing really amazing um, early kind of video, kind of telepresence video and installation work. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a group called Electronic Disturbance Theater that was doing really interesting work, a place called The Thing, a group called MTAA. And so us working collaboratively was seemed pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds very exciting. I, I can imagine back those years, it was a very, very uncommon path for an artist. And how did you distribute your work, your art? It was video. It was also, you mentioned, some sort of installations and, and performances. So how was it distributed back in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it really varied. And so there were different, I guess, different kinds of venues, different types of things. And so we were doing a lot of live mixing and VJ work at, at the time, working with different experimental musicians and kind of post drum and bass kind of thing. And I had written some software, written a bunch of kind of tools that I was using in, in doing that. Uh, that was really fun. And so there were things that were kind of explicitly performance based. And then there were things that were like film festival kind of things, but they, you know, kind of media festivals. And then in that case, you might be showing a, a kind of video tape or video clip kind of thing. Um, and then there was the art world and the gallery world. And in those contexts, you had to turn the digital work into a thing somehow. Mm -hmm. It had to be maybe a print, but that never really seemed that interesting to us. Mm -hmm. So that's, we went in this kind of like installation and, and, and sculptural direction when we were exploring or interfacing with the art world. In addition to all that was this kind of idea of net art, um, which was being developed at that time uh, and kind of was a really exciting kind of concept. And that's artists making their own websites that, that are funny or conceptual or mm -hmm. aesthetic or explore narrative or all of these different strategies of, of artists making their own making their mm -hmm. own space online okay yeah so i guess those websites weren't really like useful in the sense that nobody was going there to get information those were more like yeah art like trying to convey a message and they were i i, I guess kind of it was and, and i think that they were confusing in, our uh, yeah. in that way because it's like they were really funny or strange yeah. or, or, or weird and yeah but we had a history of working with even before net art there were cd-rom projects and things where artists were doing interactive projects that were an aesthetic object that was a cd-rom and there's a professor at cornell timothy murray that we've worked with who you know, has like an entire collection of artist CD-ROMs at this Rolls Goldstein collection archive. And so we had been working with musician Peter Gabriel kind of right out of school on an interactive project and with videos like Sledgehammer. And he was really interested in animation and thinking about how digital art could be this like interactive like nexus between audio and visual art. And so working with, with Peter and thinking about that, those were all sort of formative experiences that were very much about like creating a space that was 
more exploratory than a museum or a gallery even because you could open up this website and not really know what it was or how to navigate it in the way that a museum always announces itself as like this normal place and there's a mm-hmm. door and there's a person and I look at the art and I don't touch anything and, and it's all more or less expected. So we were really interested in, you know, how you can explore through a virtual environment pretty early. Yeah. And, and just to, to pick up on that, I'm, gl- I'm glad that Jim mentioned that because we, for Several, almost two years worked with Peter Gabriel, both in, in, in the States and then also in England at, at his studio there. And it, it was funny because it was great, really amazing. He's a, an amazing musician. And the people that kind of came through the studio were really interesting, really wonderful musicians and artists and, and things like that. It was also frustrating in the sense that we really were wanting to do our own work. And mm-hmm. or it came to it came to this point where we're like, what do we want to do? Do we want to be in this kind of role and, and kind of help these kind of big name artists? Or do we want to develop our own voice and see mm. what happens, see where, see where it goes? And so eventually we chose, we chose the latter and, and kind of left and went to do other things. But the experience with working with him was really significant because it really showed what there was an ambition to what he was doing. And there was a level of quality and visual richness and engagement and depth that that was that was in that work and i think that that was very helpful for us early on to see that level of of engagement and and to really push it you know somebody who really was wanting to push it and that was a very helpful kind of experience lesson um, early on yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense and now now that you mentioned collaborations i'm curious about your way of collaborating either with other artists musicians but also when you're working on a project, how is it? Like you have a specific task. One of you is more on the software, on the coding. One is more on the video and editing or, or the idea. Do, do, or it depends on each project. Each project is it different? Yeah, I think each project is really different. I mean, I do think that we both have to like the idea to keep working on it. Although there has been moments when somebody sort of says they're not interested anymore, but works on it in secret. And then the idea is like, look, it's really great. I told you. (laughs) And so there is a little bit of that. And Kevin certainly has, he's self-taught, but certainly has gotten a bunch of projects that we needed to code it himself. But we also bring in programmers sometimes to extend our reach a little bit. So yeah, it doesn't really break down very neatly. I hurt my little hand doing a project last year and Kevin was like, I thought, oh, now we can't do it. And Kevin was like, actually, I can do the rest. (laughs) So we shove things back and forth and it's a big sort of life work balance. But I also think that having two people at the helm of things is is just useful. So yeah, I don't know. It's not a a clean break, but I think that that certainly we're both hands-on in different ways on every single project. we realized coming out of grad school that the that the media art and tech art world was very small, especially at that time, and we didn't want to be in competition with each other. And so, you know, we just didn't think that that was a healthy way for us to live and to function. And so, there was a sense. You know, so that idea of collaborating took that problem off the table and um, and then opened up this new set of possibilities. You really have to be willing to invest and commit to this third body of work that's not mine and it's not hers. It's a kind of new thing that that neither of us would have done exactly had we been working ourselves. And so that over time, that seems you know pretty second nature to us. It's fun mm-hmm. to 
it's interesting to kind of see that third yeah. thing happen. Yeah, no, and I mean, I'm sure it's not easy to been working together for such a long time. I'm sure many duos at some point couldn't continue for one reason or another. So but for me, it's very impressive that you have been able to collaborate in so many projects, right, across the years um, and, and changing mediums. That's very impressive. And we tackle a bit about your, your beginnings, how you got started. You've been exhibited internationally in many museums. You, you also are part of uh, collections like the MoMA, the Met. So I'm wondering, when did that start? When were you starting to get, okay, let's go to this show or you were getting calls, hey, we want to exhibit yeah. this. Was it like a s slow I process? It's a pretty interesting story, really. I mean, and, and it starts in 2000, we thought that we wanted to interact with the, with the gallery world, with the art world. And so we had a, a, a sort of casual relationship with a, a gallery here in New York called Postmasters that has been doing certainly technology-based things, but more than that, just really interesting projects for a long time. And they gave us an opportunity to do something with this hole in the floor that they had in their old space. <laughs> and we built a miniature kind of two foot tall, a functional elevator that came up and down through that, through that hole and opened the doors opened up and this voice would speak to you and then it would close and go down again. And um, a project called Pink Light. And that was really, it was a big leap to try to build mm -hmm. that and pull it off. And it worked out really well. So that started this relationship with the gallery. And then the next we had this idea that we've been in our minds for a couple of years of turning narrative stories into databases. How could that transition happen? We saw just around us this age of narrative, call it film and TV and even kind of books before it seemed to be ending and this new era of algorithms and databases seemed to be emerging. So how can you take this old thing and put it into this new context. And so we had this idea that we could take uh, a TV show and break it up shot by shot and classify each shot that we saw. And then we could make categories of all of the shots that represented that any given mm -hmm. category. We started that in 2000. This is five years before YouTube launches and before Final Cut Pro or it was extremely difficult. You couldn't burn DVDs then. You know, <laughs> and the computers barely would process video. So it was kind of a crazy idea, but we pulled off this pretty nice project where we worked with this 70s television show from our childhood called Starsky and Hutch, which is this police drama, kind of cheesy now. And even then it was pretty cheesy, but well-known. And so it had an autobiographical component in the sense of like, we had this connection to it, but it had this kind of presence in the world. And it was a genre piece, a genre story, police adventure story. And so we made this project where we made these players that were kind of in, in the suitcase, kind of inspired from our VJ days, this gear kind of kit. And then this giant collection of video CDs, 278, each with these different labels on them. Every apartment exterior, every carpet, mm -hmm. every zoom in, every gunshot. And each disc was shot after shot of just that specific type of, of project, mm -hmm. of, of, of film, of, of, yeah. of clip. And that project really galvanized a lot of attention. It really was one of those things that put its finger on something that 
was about to happen or that people could feel in the air and it kind of crystallized this kind of vibe mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah. So I guess long story short, before we even really had a solo show in a gallery, we had sold that piece to the Met. Yeah. So, um, okay. first so we, the first artwork that we ever sold was selling that piece to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah. So for a while like, we thought, oh, like, the what? art world is really easy. <laughs> What's everybody <laughs> complaining about? What's the name? What's the name of that piece? The name uh, of that piece? Every shot, every episode. Okay, every shot, every episode. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that was that interesting, was and crazy. and we had a lot of early success with those with those things. And then the challenge becomes like, well, how do you move your ideas forward? And is it always that you need to have that late level of success to think that mm -hmm. the idea is worth doing, or mm -hmm. do you go your own way? Which going back to your introduction is one reason why teaching has been a great sort of way to do that. You're always there, you're talking about the ideas, but if you want to try something that isn't as packageable for the gallery to be able to mm -hmm. find a buyer for, you can still do your work. And so that's been the priority is like, how do you make your situation such that you can work on the ideas that are interesting and exciting for you mm -hmm. and not make your art practice into a product or a factory? Right. That, and I think that the best way to showcase that is when you work on quantum, because it was, again, it was very revolutionary. And, and I wonder, can you tell us a bit about that story? Because it was in 2014 when the term NFTs that didn't exist. How did that happen? So you were trying to find ways to distribute a digital object and you came with this yeah, idea. I mean, it didn't start as a solution to a problem. It started as a question, a, a kind of thought idea. And, and it connects directly to when I'd heard about it in 2010, like a, a number of old timers with this post that appeared on the tech blog Slashdot, but didn't really pay attention to it. But I remember at that time and then learned about it again in the fall of 2012 and then started getting into it. And then in 2013, the first half of it, I was reading the white paper and trying mm -hmm. to really understand it, looking at the source code, and then being involved with the crypto online community at that time, which all took place mostly in one forum. And it was just this explosion of different ideas, people talking about all these different kinds of things. Not a lot, no, very little art stuff, almost no art stuff. People were not thinking that way, at least very much at all. But for me, the idea was fairly simple in the sense that once I understood that Satoshi had created some notion of digital uniqueness, it's distributable, it's natively digital, it's networked, it's everyone has it's source, the source codes there, the all the records on the blockchain are, are, are there, it's all there, yet somehow there's this unique thing that one thing is mine and your thing is yours and I can send my thing to yours and I don't have mine anymore, was pretty mind-blowing. And then once that idea was, once I kind of understood that, it was this kind of simple step for me. It was like, well, could you make a digital artwork do that? Could an artwork be, have the same types of properties that Bitcoin has? And then the question was, how would you do it? But then also would that object be, what would that thing be? Mm -hmm. It would be a new kind of thing. And so that was, and then, and I kind of had that idea in that in the fall of 2013 of, of like thinking about how that could kind of come together. And then usually in artists' lives, it's deadlines that drive you forward. It's like the show's coming up. You gotta make uh, gotta get this work yeah. done. Stop messing around. And so the art organization Rhizome 
we were friends with them and they were part of this community that we were in. And they knew I was thinking about these ideas and talking about this stuff just informally. And they invited me to present it at an event mm-hmm. um, at the new museum um, in, in that fall. And so that was like, oh, okay, I guess we've got to like, I guess I'll kind of do it. But it, it, I didn't arrive with it. I arrived with it all mapped out, but I hadn't made anything. Mm, it was conceptual. It was the, the, the theory behind it. I had the map mm-hmm. in my mind. It's like, oh, okay, this is how we can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with that conference, the form of it, the conceit of it is to pair an artist with a technologist, just put them together. And they paired me with Neil Dash. And, you know, and he'd be the first to admit that he's not like a hardcore coder guy. He, he has an amazing career. And he's an incredible person with this amazing um, overview and all kinds of experience, but it was really the right kind of experience. And we really kind of hit it off when I just said to him, I've got this idea for digital ownership or ownership of digital artworks using blockchains. And he's like, sounds great. The first thing that we did was, I mean, was to try to come up with the name. What is it? What are Mm -hmm. we talking about? (laughs) What is this thing? And that was the, just this hilarious conversation that where we came up with this term and this concept of monetized graphics. These are monetized graphics. And uh-huh. that, became, that became monograph for okay. short. That was our name for it. These are monographs, okay. uh, but spelled with an E because M-O-N-O monograph in the art world is a book about a, a single artist. Um, so it has this kind of singularity idea to it. Mm-hmm. M-O-N-E has this kind of money component to it. So it was monetized graphics. And so in that context, I made three three works over that time and he was he provided these incredibly critical components to that he knew how to build a web page really fast that could function <laughs> that worked what how to deploy it my knowledge on that would have been slow and halting he knew about data structures that was a very important component but most of all he was an amazing um, communicator and so we were able mm. to put the story together um, okay. on stage that really walked people kind of through it through mm-hmm. the process. And so there were three works created at that time, Quantum, the Cars, and the primord- another piece called Primordial Loop, which draws from a net art piece that we made in the 90s. So it was an attempt okay. to kind of bridge those mm-hmm. eras together. Right. No, it's quite an exciting story. And then this happened in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I was reading an article, I think it was on NFT Now, you were put on the spotlight after six, seven years, right? 2021, 2020, when NFTs started to become popular. But this was seven years after. And I believe it was the original concept was minted on Namecoin. That was an old blockchain that's not really operational anymore. Is that the case? It's 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 operational. Yeah, it's operational. Yeah, in the time after that, was attempting to move the monograph idea forward and for several years was building that concept and had a group of people that I was working with and we built, you know, we really built the first the first platform that launched in 2015 where you could, again, these are later day terms, but we didn't use these terms at the time, but you could mint, you could buy and sell, you okay. could collect, you could display stuff on a, mm-hmm. on a smart TV. We had a mobile app, an iOS and Android app. So there's all this stuff but there were no users and there was certainly no sales. So <laughs> it, it was too early, too early. <laughs> yeah. And you forget, it's like all the things that you take for granted now of 
vertical integration that Ethereum ecosystem has built and the web wallet, the connected web wallet with Ethereum, all those things. So it's like, take away all that stuff. And it's mm -hmm. pretty difficult pretty, to pretty buy difficult. and sell anything. Yeah. But, but more than anything, people just didn't understand it, did not understand yeah. the idea. And it was a kind of variations of the right click save question that really, yeah, it really confused people. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Even today, it can be a little bit tricky. Many of my friends and family, they still don't understand it quite well. So what do you do with these things? But no, that's really, really exciting. And then this artwork, went, Quantum in particular, went to an auction with Sotheby's. When was that? How was that experience to be auctioned at Sotheby's for a digital item? Was it a different? Were you live in the offices, in the auction house, or was it all fully digital? How was this experience? It was, it was digital, yes. Yeah. They approached me about a sale, and more than the sale, it was this kind of a, a context, right? It was a good yeah. context to bring that work forward, you know, bring that story forward. And I wasn't present. Well, I mean, it was a week-long auction, and then everything started at a low price. I think, I think everything started at 100 bucks. So it was really just like, let's see what happens. Yeah. And it played out over a week, but it was intense. It was crazy. We've had experience in the art world, but not with auction houses. We've had primary, certainly primary sales and secondary sales, but the auction uh, dynamic and was new. That yeah. Was, that was intense. Yeah, it was, I, I can believe it was intense because it, I believe it went over a million dollars. That's a, kind of a... A great way to start again, like your first uh, time with a museum yeah. that collected your work. And then again, with this auction, like a very big auction. So that's uh, pretty impressive. And when you started creating art, we were uh, mentioning that you were to art school, that you collaborated. Did you have in mind to at some point be at Sotheby's or Christie's in one of these auction house? Was that one of your goals or, or you had this idea or that was no, not impossible, at all. <laughs> impossible I mean, to think about that? No, I mean, it's, it's, I like thinking about these different ecosystems that art can function in. I think that, that art's meaning is somehow also related to how it moves through your society. So it's interesting, but certainly as for me, first a filmmaker that making experimental work, like you pretty much just hope to make the next project is the goal. So yeah, no, <laughs> it's not a goal and really not a part of the art world that our immediate circle really deals with all of that much. It's much more about like interesting people globally that turn up to galleries and museums and mm -hmm. maybe lectures and panels and that kind of thing. So yeah. And there's plenty of, it's New York city. So there's plenty of places to do yeah. art without thinking about the sort of larger systems yeah. that are global that way. Yeah. I mean, obviously the money is important, makes the whole world um, possible. Auction houses are a significant component of that. But it's just this tiny part of the, mm -hmm. of the art world. And yeah. and it's just not that. You could think of like artists that were really Damien Hirst and Jeff Koons, living artists that really were making marketability something that was part of their practice in, in some shape or form. And, and that's interesting. And, mm -hmm. and, and the execution of their work, the level that it was, you know, Matthew Barney probably fits into that category to a certain extent. Auction, and especially Damien Hirst was innovating with all these like primary sales directly through the auction house, all this stuff that was, it was okay. It was kind of cool, mm -hmm. but it's not that interesting. And yeah. it's not 
that dynamic. Yes. Yeah. So, so it was not really a, a, a place where we thought that our ideas were going to be. Well. Yeah. No, and, and you mentioned that in New York City, you have plenty of options, but now also in the digital space. I mean, you have been part of a federal file exhibitions, also expanded that yeah. art which is with Annika Mayer, which by the way, how we got in touch. So thanks a lot, uh, Annika, for yep. the introduction. Yep. So you have plenty of options these days. You can do it the traditional way with galleries. In New York City, you have different options, but now also these digital experiences. And how has it changed, let's say, your practice maybe, or the way how you approach your practice, your art now that you have these fully digital experiences that weren't possible before, has it affected the way how you approach things and how you create yeah. art? I mean, I do think that particularly Lancy Sky, which had 300 lower priced things that were a set price that could go out to a lot of different people. I mean, it's been pretty amazing to kind of travel, say, to Berlin and run into people who collected that project. And your reach is just a lot more extended if it's a little bit invisible. <laughs> so it's like with a gallery show, it's high visibility. You may even meet the person who collects the work and it's in the room, but there's not that many of them. Or with digital, it's a little bit more like a movie ticket where the price is somewhat more accessible and more global in reach. So mm -hmm. I like that. It is pretty funny because I feel like in the art world, since our work sometimes has like a sense of humor or a sort of accessibility that I think for the art world, people are like, oh, it's really engaging and accessible. Mm -hmm. The same ideas in the digital work are like, oh, it's so complicated and abstract. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing to like communicate to those audiences. And okay. now I'm sure you've sort of seen and Annika and I talked about a lot, these audiences are really coming together where mm -hmm. people who were just interested in sort of digital collectability yeah. are learning a lot about art really fast and are learning about the history and starting to kind of get the bug of like mm -hmm. how ideas connect to each other over the centuries, which is the most interesting part of art. And, and, that, and that has been just, that has been an amazing part of this wave with NFTs and over the last, you know, three or four years kind of broke out into the world is a whole new type of person was collecting and invested in collecting and invested yeah. in thinking about artworks um, and, and engaging with them. And so many different kinds of artists were brought into, into a community and brought into a dialogue that they weren't before or, or would have had a hard time doing before. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of like what we were just talking about out of graduate school where there were all these media art festivals mm -hmm. and we were kind of one of our main ways of showing was like mailing a VHS screening copy of a video. And mm -hmm. these days coming out of art school, a quick entry level is to just put up your stuff on a blockchain mm -hmm. and tell all your friends about it. So it's interesting that emerging artists keep finding networks. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the commonality there. Yeah. We mentioned briefly that you're also teaching your professors. And so do you see like your students, are they open-minded in general about blockchain art? Is it something that they are interested in more or less, or, or how do it's, you feel about the new newer generations? It's mixed and it's hard to make generalizations. It's certainly the case that kind of massive scale of frauds that came to light in 
spring and, and you know fall of 2022 yeah. really affected the whole enterprise as an old timer it's like i've certainly you know, seen plenty of frauds and bad actors but even i was kind of surprised and shocked a bit at the scale at just the truly epic scale and then it was clear after the fact that all of the kind of frothy money hype was just kind of created out of this kind of circular trading of marginal tokens. And so that had a big impact on everybody, including students and young people. So yeah. that sense of like, oh, NFTs are just a scam. You can't, it's harder to say, but not necessarily when all of that stuff is happening. But that said, students are interested in, in, in a lot of different things. And, and they're also skeptical of a lot of different things. They're skeptical of, of, of blockchain. They're skeptical of AI. You know, they're skeptical mm. of VR. And they're also engaging with those things. So I think that what I see with the you know, younger generation, college age kids, is a they understand the two-sided coin of technology. They've experienced plenty of downsides of it, their kind of psychological lives or whatever. And so they're 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 nuanced. I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that if they were worried about NFTs and blockchain, that has been completely eclipsed by being afraid and worried about AI. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, not yeah. without reason, as Kevin is saying, but mm -hmm. I think that what we're here to do in our various teaching jobs is to sort of say, you can be really critical and use that in your work and yet still try to use the tools that are relevant to people today and try not to be in a position of fearfulness where you want to experiment. So anyway, I don't know how these ideas will play out in all of their work. And I really, obviously it depends on the individual person, mm -hmm. but I do think that there is a, still a space for people to be interested in software and code-based art um, and not engage with blockchain. And I think that's yeah. totally happening. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. I mean, I see a lot of creative coders and they are not touching the blockchain. They are creating either plot art or, or prints or they use creator uh, digital art. But yeah, they don't engage necessarily with the blockchain. And that's also the case with AI art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Many people, it's very easy now to enter the AI art world. And some are just doing it for fun, just to experiment. But yeah, it's not, even if it's there and it's a possibility, I still think it's a little bit complicated for anybody to mint on the blockchain. And as you mentioned, there are some drawbacks. But yeah, we'll see how it evolves. We mentioned the, your show with Expanded.art. And, and I'm very curious about that one. It's machine organic. Can you tell us a bit about that, the concept, how it came to be, and, and what's the concept behind uh, machine organic? Mm -hmm. Do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the whole show really kind of makes a, a claim for how does the eye deal with complexity? How does the computer deal with complexity? How does nature deal with complexity? We try to explore that in video and in drawing and in digital code. So the three things are kind of knit together. And so the forest and the trees as like image is the basis of all the work. Subject matter. The yeah. subject matter, right. Yeah. The theme of everything. And then the different media explore it in different ways. Um, and yeah, it was really interesting. We had a residency in Maine at a place called Reach Projects, which was very helpful to work this through. And we have a plotter that handles code 
as its input, but then the output is whatever material you want to use. So there's works in the show that are India ink, there's acrylic paint, there's charcoal, and there's ballpoint pen in terms of drawing output. And and we also, Annika was very helpful in that the core of the show are these, I think we showed 11 projects that the buyer gets both an NFT. So they get the digital version and they mm. get a drawing. And the interesting thing is to look at the difference between those two outputs. They're not the same. And they're not the same. They're just okay. the code basis is the same, but the output is vastly different. <laughs> so it was super experimental that way. And it was really kind of a great time to do this where it's like, who is interested in NFTs and what are we doing now with that? And what kind of, you know, what kind of collector has this like broad understanding of the way code is manipulated, but also how it's resolved. Those kinds of, of ideas really inspired the exhibition. And we're still working with those ideas potentially on more of an interactive installation next about this idea of the forest and the dark forest of cryptocurrency and how to mm. sort of visualize possibly being inside of that as a as a viewer so yeah. anyway it's bouncing around in some creative ways <laughs> yeah the, i just always i love that phrase that emerged to describe the mempool of transactions that aren't yet mm. you know verified calling that the dark forest and the whole emergence of minor extra mev minor extracted value, or what's it called now? Maximum, so there's some softer name for it, minor extracted value. Um, Sounds like a punk band from DC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the miners, the value they get from mining, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, they can, okay. where they can front run a trade or uh, reorganize the transactions in such a way where they can kind of snipe all this way in which the miners as, mm -hmm. as validators and as block builders can g game the system in a way. And so that idea in theory is present in all blockchains, public ledgers yeah. in some shape or form. Some are much at risk is much more minimized. In Ethereum, because of the robustness of the contract language and the ecosystem, it's much more of an issue. And, and of course, yeah. that's well understood in that community and various kind of sophisticated approaches to it. But the name is always just so great, the dark forest, you know, the mempool is the dark forest. That's a kind of mythological like title, kind of a fairy tale idea. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of resonance to that idea, both in a digital world and in a kind of physical world. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And would you talking about mining and the impact in the environment of uh, Bitcoin and the deep, mm -hmm. also Ethereum until the merge, it was also a proof of work. This technology is has an impact on the environment. And I was uh, very, not surprised, but it was, I think the first time, maybe there are other artists that are doing this, but you have an echo, uh, let's say, approach right to your art where you are trying to what's the name like the emissions right like yeah yeah it's yeah a, it's, a, a, it's a strategy of mitigating mm -hmm. just kind of being right. aware of, of these things and trying to create some kind of mitigations a long time ago i was interested in these ideas that go under this heading of permaculture these kind of different approaches to agriculture and to building that, that think about all the energy flows that happen mm -hmm. On a say like a farm or a piece of land or something like mm -hmm. that, and building and designing things that um, take advantage of those things and, and yeah. kind of recirculate. Now mm -hmm. a lot of those ideas go under the name of um, uh, regenerative uh, agriculture and things like that. So mm -hmm. that idea for, of identifying and accounting for resources and mm -hmm. kind of where they go and how that energy is transformed is mm -hmm. something that I think is really interesting. Blockchains are so amazing. It's it's so great in which they create essentially this 
kind of small version of a very complex things, almost like a toy yeah. version of financial things that people like you and I never had any kind of exposure to, but they're fundamental to how the world works. All of a sudden, here's this version of it that's built on this public ledger, some kind yeah. of derivatives thing or a loan thing or insurance thing or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And so- Fractionalization. Yeah, fractionalization, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you can- participate in those things and in doing so, get an understanding of them. And so blockchains have just been so amazing to see, I'm certainly not alone, and, and you know, so many people have had that experience of exposure and understanding of systems in the world through this technology. And so I think that kind of thinking in this larger ecological yeah. way almost seems natural to people who are thinking about crypto stuff. I think yeah. that, that is, is it certainly systems, became part systems of systems thinking. Yeah, yeah, and becomes part of the conversation really quickly. And for us as artists, like the minting is so small, but mm -hmm. the, the idea of the crypto as a whole system is a larger idea. And we wanted to really try to figure out, well, what is the part you play? And obviously before the merge, that is a much different thing. But also there's like political, there's chains that are have to deal with political issues as well yeah. as environmental ones. So we're just trying to like, as good conceptual artists from the past, like mm -hmm. trying to figure out all of the different different spheres of uh, inquiry that choosing one tool over another engenders. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how hard has it been for you to understand like the impact and maybe make a plan and actually execute the plan for, yeah, for... You know, these things are very difficult. They're surprisingly yeah. difficult to model. And the thing also is that it keeps changing. You can have this sort of conception of like, okay, here's the way things work and you can make these assumptions, but then the market evolves. And this is especially true in Bitcoin mining, which kind of short story of like, oh, proof of work is bad and the kind of the merge and proof of stake solved, solved a lot of problems. I mean, that merge was, was incredible and it's like yeah. an incredible human achievement in and of itself. But even Bitcoin mining is just changing drastically with all of this kind of flare gas based energy and all this kind of yes. uh, load balancing that's happening with it. So it's very hard to, very complicated to estimate. Yeah. You, you, I guess we just apply kind of art thinking where it's like, okay, this is how we kind of sketch out the landscape and this is kind of our draft, our drawing, and then yeah. you make a decision and say, okay, we're going to try these things. That's, yeah. That's it. And it's a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not easy, but it's great to have that approach and to yeah. put it out there. People, their collectors, other artists are, are, are see these kind of initiatives. I think that's the, the, the main way to have this in mind. I think that's the most important thing. Well, um, and, and just to add on that, what really galvanized us to act in that way was talking to the Sundance Film Festival. And it's one of those great situations where different communities come together and new ideas come out. It's productive. And yeah. the Sundance community had a very negative take on uh, the environmental components of blockchain. And it yeah. really made us go, okay, we need to do uh, something. Try yeah. something. Now, but what was also interesting is we then posed a question to, to, to them, and I, which was, do you do energy audits for the films that you show? Mm. What is the energy profile and resource consumption profile of, of the movies that you saw? And right. that was like something that had never occurred to them at all. It's like, oh my gosh, what? It was, it was fun to kind of hold a mirror up to that too, not in a kind of like gotcha way or whatever, but it's like. No, but it's, also it's, a mirror, a double mirror in that we then thought, 
how often do we need to fly internationally? What if we yeah. like think about that? Like all the other parts of the project that aren't about a gas fee, but what are the other gas fees like towards yeah. like going to Berlin or Korea or any number of other or ship, shipping the artwork and the, if it's Absolutely. a big installation, yeah. What happens oh. to the crate? Like yeah. all of the things. So yeah, we're trying to figure that out as is our many, many people. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a very good initiative. And for everybody that's listening, um, you can see it in the McCoy site. You can see that, that it's stated there in their next to their projects, okay. the energy plan. Yeah, that's very exciting. So we're coming almost to the end and it's been an hour. Very fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing your journey and your experience, your takes on the digital art space. But usually I like to ask this question to everybody that's in the podcast. Who are three artists that inspire you? Could be digital artists, could be physical oh, yeah. in the traditional world, but three names that inspire your work. Okay. I actually read your preparatory oh, notes. Okay. Thank you so oh, much. <laughs> While he's thinking, I can say mine. I would say the the artist and composer Robert Ashley, mm. who's a musician composer that died, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe now, with really beautiful work that always pushed boundaries and really was both conceptual and narrative and yet made a sort of like amazing space for just transforming the room and the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my favorites. Um, and then I would also say uh, Andrea Frazier, who's like a, an artist that does a lot of performance and institutional critique and looking at systems and the way that the world works. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of hers. And you wanted three, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a number, but two yeah. is also... So These are artists that I just am an Instagram fan of, okay. but they also are a collaborative duo, I think, from mm -hmm. Finland, or no, from Lithuania, excuse me, called Pakui Hardware. And it's just like the weirdest, coolest, like body horror kind of sculpture. Okay. And I think they might be in the Venice Biennial for Lithuania coming up. So we're hoping to maybe burn some fuel and go in June and see them. Nice. But yeah, those were my three. So I'll riff on that. And, and I think a name that I often give, and it's similar to Robert Ashley, is Pauline Oliveros, another amazing composer. And she passed away about five or six years ago, but we worked with her extensively in, in grad school. And it's just an amazing holism in her thinking, just so complex and so complete in the way she thought about things and trained your attention to pay attention to details and to, and to have those details start to resonate. So she's just really amazing. And then just two digital people I want to kind of give a shout out to, mm -hmm. Raphael Rosendahl, who's known for a long time. Yeah. And he is, I just really love what he's doing with his distributing his works on his own site, kind of starting in, he did all kinds of net art stuff and some really amazing, innovative work with net art around owning net art. And of course, his style is so, yeah. um, so wonderful, but how he's kind of brought the whole art blocks concept and onto yeah. his own site and is now kind of releasing, you know, the work that he wants when he wants to, how he wants to mm. is really the ideal, but really the yeah. crypto art ideal that he's managed to, to get there in such a fundamental way. It's awesome. And then I'm, I'm going to give a shout out to Pac, but it's like mm. his works in, in 2021, it's like the sophistication and just yeah. the scale of those works and the kind of they're funny and they're conceptual and they're just great. So it's just like, yeah. And the, the mechanisms implemented and was very like 
yeah, innovative. Now we see those and we say, okay, yeah, burning or yes. uh, transferring. But when you think about it it's at that time, it was very, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic list. Six amazing names. Everybody that's listening, all the names that were mentioned and all the collections will be in the description. So you can find the links if you want to look at the artists, the collections, also the ones we mentioned from Kevin and Jennifer. And this was great. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. I hope you had fun and maybe we can do it again sometime in the future. Anytime. It was wonderful yeah. to meet you. Yeah, great great meet conversation. You. Really, really enjoyable. Yep. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And talk to you soon. Yeah. Keep in touch. 